Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves, continuing medical education podcast. Join us for a lively discussion on the latest and greatest in the field of electrocardiography. We'll discuss some of the exciting and innovative work happening at Mayo Clinic and beyond with the most brilliant minds in the space and provide valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Welcome to Mayo Clinic's ECG segment, Making Waves. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Dr. Ken Grauer, picking up where we left off on the critical role of history and having a systematic approach in ECG interpretation. We're shifting our focus to the topic of acute coronary occlusion and the ECG errors that could mean the difference between detection and a miss. We're fortunate to have Dr. Ken Grauer back with us today. Dr. Grauer is Professor Emeritus in Family Medicine, Following his residency training in family medicine, he worked for two years in a busy emergency department in South Florida before moving to Gainesville, Florida, where he was full-time faculty in the University of Florida Family Medicine Residency Program for his 30-year career until he retired from his academic practice in 2010. Dr. Grauer has written over 10 books on ECG and arrhythmia interpretation, presented hundreds of talks and workshops locally and nationally on ECG interpretation and other cardiology topics over his career. And he's been active as ever since retiring. With over 3 million views on his own ECG blog, he's the associate editor and active contributor to Dr. Stephen Smith's ECG blog, as well as he continues to answer numerous questions, daily queries that are addressed to him on so many international ECG internet forums that he continues to contribute to. Dr. Grauer, thank you so much for coming back with us. I'm really excited uh, about this episode here. Thank you, Anthony. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Grauer, you know, in the previous episode, we covered the importance of incorporating the history, routine use of a systematic approach to both rhythm and 12-lead interpretation. In this episode, we wanted to shift gears, as we mentioned earlier, from the ECG errors and how those errors can be uh, occur in the setting of acute coronary occlusion. And I wanted you, because you've been studying and looking at this so much, what do you have planned for us today and where are we going to take this? Well, as you mentioned, Anthony, in your introduction, one of the main functions of the electrocardiogram is simply to assess the patient with chest pain and or other symptoms, or even if no symptoms, but to assess the patient for the possibility of acute ischemia and infarction. So I wanted to address a number of points that relate to this, that relate to errors that are made regarding this assessment and some simple things we can do to improve our interpretations, make them more time efficient, make them more accurate. And the first error that I would start with is that all too many clinicians in 2023 are still stuck in the STEMI paradigm. And that paradigm is simply that you need a certain number of millimeters depending upon the age of the patient and the sex of the patient and the lead that you're looking at, you need a certain number of millimeters before you qualify as having an acute STEMI with quotes around that. So this first error is that too many clinicians are still stuck in the STEMI paradigm. And this brings up the question of what do we really care about when we're looking at the ECG of a patient who presents with new symptoms, especially new chest pain? And the answer is that we wanna know, is there an acute coronary occlusion? Because these are the patients that we could do the most of. 
if we have an acute infarction because of acute coronary occlusion, which is almost always the case, these are the patients who by reperfusing, opening up the occluded artery, either by PCI, by thrombolytics, we can benefit by salvage of significant amounts of myocardium. So the problem is that the STEMI paradigm in 2023 is wrong and it's outdated. Smith and Myers have shown that at least 30%, if not significantly more than that, at least 30% of all patients with an acute coronary occlusion, and the abbreviation for this that is now being used more and more is an acute OMI, that's an occlusion-based myocardial infarction, so at least 30% of patients who have an acute OMI, you're going to miss these patients if you're stuck on waiting for a certain number of millimeters of ST elevation. Now, how many of you have encountered this? How many of you find that when you contact your interventionist, they say, well, we can't really do a cath at this point because the ECG does not yet show a STEMI. There's not enough millimeters of ST elevation. Now, some of these patients eventually develop a STEMI. This could be minutes or more often hours later. And yes, you finally get a STEMI and you take them to the cath lab and you do angioplasty or you start your thrombolytic. But hours later, you've lost part of the ball game, you've lost a significant amount of myocardium that you could have salvaged if you took them to the cath lab earlier. Other patients with acute OMI, acute occlusion, they never develop the STEMI criteria despite having acute coronary occlusion that may result in extensive damage with troponins that go up into the many thousands. Could be that their ST segment elevation was before they got to the hospital, before EMS arrived on the scene, so you never saw it. So error number two, many of these patients who have troponins in the thousands, they never have an ECG that satisfies the millimeter-based STEMI criteria. What do they get diagnosed as having? They get diagnosed as having an N-STEMI. That's a non-ST segment elevation MI. And I will say that, at least in my experience, a majority of patients who are diagnosed as having an N-STEMI actually had acute coronary occlusion, but they never met STEMI criteria. So to me, this is error number two, almost error number one. It's not appreciating that N-STEMI, it's really, practically speaking, a useless term probably ought to be abandoned. That's in my opinion, simply because uh, it just states that at the time that one or more ECGs were done, that there never was uh, enough millimeters of ST elevation to qualify as a STEMI. It does in no way rule out the possibility that there was acute coronary occlusion. And again, as I emphasize, Smith and Myers have shown at least 30% of the time, if not significantly more, you're going to miss OMIs if you're stuck on this definition. So error number three, this is not appreciating the ECG findings to look for when you don't meet STEMI criteria. So the new paradigm, and again, lots of credit ongoing 
to Robert Herman, who you had on your podcast earlier, to Drs. Smith and Myers. The new paradigm is to look for other ECG findings apart from enough ST segment elevation to qualify as an acute occlusion myocardial infarction. So in a patient with new chest pain, what are some of these other findings? And I'm going to first list four or five of these, and then I wanted to go over each one by giving a couple of pointers with them. So the first non enough ST elevation criteria is the presence of hyperacute T waves. Then there's what I call a magical reciprocal relationship between the ST segments. This is the mirror image opposite relationship between lead three and lead AVL with an acute inferior infarction. The third one is, is there a posterior infarction? And the last one that I'll go over today, there are a few others, but the last one is, are there dynamic ST segment T wave changes on serial ECGs? There's a lot contained in that last one. So let me start by going over the first other criteria, apart from having enough ST elevation, are there hyperacute T waves? And I've never seen strict written criteria of whether or not you have, quote, hyperacute T waves. It's kind of like recognizing a face. I know you, Anthony, I recognize your face, but if you ask me to describe you other than to saying how handsome you are, I couldn't do it in terms of words, but I recognize you and it's the same thing. The more practice you get with uh, looking at ST segments and T waves, you get more comfortable recognizing an appearance of the ST segment and or T wave that just shouldn't be there, which in a patient with new chest pain is data. So a pearl that I would give out is if you have a patient who presents with a cardiac sounding new chest pain and you see one or two leads, doesn't have to be more, that has what you recognize as this just shouldn't be there, they're hyperacute T waves. Now, how do you define that? Well, I look at T waves that are what I call taller than they should be, taller than expected, with consideration to the QRS complex within that lead. For example, you'll look at a lead V2, and the R wave is usually pretty small in lead V2, so if I see a T wave of seven or eight millimeters that's taller than the R wave, and the S wave is not very deep, only a couple millimeters, it is disproportionately tall, much taller than it should be. I look for T waves that are, and I usually put quotes around this not to offend anyone, fatter at their peak than they should be. They are taller than they should be. They're wider at their base than they should be for what is a normal repolarization T wave. And again, the more you do this, the more comfortable you get with recognizing these. Now, a uh, couple of points with this. One is prior tracings. You know, is this T wave, it looks a little abnormal, the history, it's not that definitive, but there are some new symptoms. Can I find an old ECG? 
And if you find that the T wave was previously flat or even depressed, and now it's somewhat elevated, that's hyperacute. And if you get in leads like uh, the inferior leads, especially, which are often low QRS amplitude, the T wave does not have to be real tall. It's just compared to the QRS complex, it's taller than it should be, than you would expect it to be, and particularly if you see it in neighboring leads. So if I see lead three is definitely abnormal, I'm going to look at neighboring leads. I'm going to look at leads two and AVF, and they may not be very abnormal. It may be that if I only looked at lead two or AVF alone, that I wouldn't really be convinced, but in the context of new chest pain, and lead three is definitely abnormal, then any slight abnormality in other leads may become significant, particularly if it is in uh, neighboring leads. If I look at lead three, for example, and I'm concerned about the T wave there, I'm gonna look at lead two and lead V4. And if V4 has a little bit taller than it should be, I'll look at V5. Let me move on to the magical, what I call, I've labeled this the magical reciprocal relation. I've developed the mirror test. I don't know if I was the first one. I began popularizing this. 1983 was my first publication, and I put it in all my books and blogs. It's what I call the mirror test but not only for posterior infarction that I'll get to in a moment, but also for other reciprocal changes. You can see a mirror image. The heart is a cylinder, or at least the left ventricle is cylindrical in shape, such that if you have ST segments going up in one of the walls, really almost all of the other walls for a cylinder are gonna be opposite and instead of ST segments going up, the ST segments may go down. And the shape of that ST segment is a mirror image. You just flip it up. If you have an electrocardiogram, you can flip it up and hold it up to the light if you wanted to. With inferior infarction, Dr. Smith has emphasized this concept. Also, when you have an acute inferior infarction, there is this magical relationship between leads three and AVL. Now, if you think of it in the frontal plane, lead three is at about 120 degrees in the frontal plane, lead AVL is at minus 30 degrees. They are almost directly opposite. And with acute inferior infarction, lead AVL often, almost always, I should say, manifests a mirror image opposite shape of the ST segment in lead three. So not only elevated, but if you've got coving, a little bit of curving and then an upright, fatter than expected T-wave peak, you will see a mirror image opposite picture in lead AVL almost always. And this is helpful because oftentimes we ask ourselves, is this a normal repolarization variant? That should not give you a mirror image opposite shape. Now, you may normally sometimes get T-wave inversion and lead AVL. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the whole ST segment T-wave mirror image opposite shape in AVL compared to lead three. That's what I look for if I'm considering acute inferior OMI. How about posterior myocardial infarction? Posterior OMI, how do we determine this? And in my experience, 
this is one of the most, if not the most commonly overlooked diagnosis. And the reason it's so commonly overlooked is dependence on posterior leaps. What you do is you could do a, you rotate the patient, you do a V7, V8, V9, you almost have to have, you have to have the patient lying face down in the bed to get to V9. And that gives you a look at what the posterior wall of the left ventricle might look at. But to get that view, how much of the thick back musculature does the electrical activity have to go through? And basically that's the reason if you look at posterior leads, sure, they may show some ST elevation, V7, V8, V9, but the amplitude of this is a whole lot less in almost all cases than what you have with what I call my mirror test. With my mirror test, basically I'm looking at anterior leads, usually V2, V3, V4. I mean, you could start out even without the mirror test. Uh, you could say if you have maximal ST depression in lead V2 and or V3 and or V4, if it's maximal in one or more of those leads in a patient with new chest pain, it's a posterior OMI until you prove otherwise. So you can say that. Now you have to keep in mind, if the ST segments are depressed, not only in those V2, V3, V4 leads, but diffusely, maybe the patient has what's known as diffuse subendocardial ischemia, Maybe they have diffuse coronary disease, not an acute posterior OMI. Now, they could have both. So just because they have a lot of ST depression in V2, V3, V4, they could also have severe coronary disease. The point I'm making is if it's maximal in V2 or V3 and or V4, then think posterior infarction. And if you have a positive mirror test, that is the shape of the ST segment in lead V2, V3, or V4, is the mirror image opposite of what looks like an acute infarction shape with Q waves and ST elevation. That's a positive mirror test. Okay, so that's posterior OMI. Now, most of the time, you're gonna see acute inferior MI when you have an acute posterior OMI, but sometimes you don't you can have an isolated posterior OMI, in which case, if you depended on using posterior leads, you're gonna miss it. You're gonna miss it because the amplitude is a whole lot less. And in my experience, I've seen posterior OMIs in which my mirror test gives a positive diagnosis. You don't see anything in the posterior leads. Okay. We're up to dynamic ST and T wave changes on serial ECGs. So your patient has chest pain, the first ECG really doesn't show much. Maybe non-specific ST segment flattening, maybe a little ST segment depression, nothing overly remarkable. When you repeat the ECG, you now see that there has been some changes with respect to what that first ECG showed. This is data. You had a patient with chest pain and in front of your eyes over the minutes or longer, you've had a change. Now, let me emphasize, you know, when do you repeat the ECG? 
a lot of times people wait too long. If you have an active, acutely evolving OMI, you may see changes not in an hour, not in 20 minutes. I've seen them in less than 10 minutes, in five minutes. Depends on the setting. So basically, if your first ECG is nonspecific, non-diagnostic, but you have a high prevalence situation, what we talked about, patient has what sounds like cardiac sounding chest pain, you want to be repeating ECGs serially often until you know they are or are not having an acute OMI. Now, you can look at troponins. Don't fall into the trap that the first troponin, even if it's high sensitivity, was normal, because even acute OMIs, sometimes potentially evolving large OMIs, can have a normal high sensitive troponin for the first troponin result. So don't stop there. You want to keep doing things for your patient, your clinically by the history suspicious of until you have a definitive answer. Okay, dynamic changes. So we can repeat the ECG, we can find a prior tracing. Now, when you find a prior tracing, so often I have, here is the prior ECG. And my question is, what was going on with the prior ECG? The person forgot to look. They forgot to look and see, oh, the patient had their first myocardial infarction at the time of this prior ECG. That's not a baseline. That's an ECG when the patients have an acute ischemia and an infarction. So it's good to get whatever you can for prior ECGs, but continue to look at the prior chart and find out what was the history at the time of the prior ECG that you're showing me there. The history. So often I see this is the first ECG, this is the repeat ECG, and I ask what was happening at the time of the first ECG? Was there still chest pain? Or was it that the patient had crushing the worst chest pain ever for three hours at home and then it went away? And the first ECG was when the chest pain went away. That is critical. So I would suggest that you write down on the actual ECG what the history was at the time that ECG was done and put it in the chart because otherwise it's gone. And that is critical data. And that is so rarely done. So that gets into the series of my next errors, not paying attention to serial ECGs. And this includes a series of problems that, that occur. And the reason for this, I think, is not appreciating the pathophysiology of what happens with an acute OMI, an acute occlusion myocardial infarction, because the process itself is dynamic. In probably over 90% of cases with acute infarction, there's an acute coronary occlusion, acute OMI. So that's the first thing that occurs, whatever causes that to occur, whether there was underlying plaque, how severe the plaque is, there's an acute occlusion of that vessel. Myocardial damage can be limited 
if we can determine what the culprit artery is, do an acute cardiac catheterization, and open by angioplasty within a timely period that culprit artery, or institute, if you don't have access to prompt cath 24-7, if you do thrombolytic therapy in a timely manner, you can also open the culprit artery. So reperfusion can be accomplished either way, by PCI or by thrombolytics. And if you reperfuse the culprit artery in a timely manner, then you can limit the damage. And what you'll find is as the vessel reperfuses, usually, I mean, nothing's 100%. You can even have acute infarctions without chest pain. But most of the time, the patient's symptoms will decrease. And usually or often, they will go away as the culprit artery is reperfused. So what happens to the ST segment changes? If there was ST elevation at the time of the chest pain and the acute occlusion, and you open the vessel, as we talked about earlier, we said, well, there could be this pseudo-normalization stage as the ST segments come down to baseline. And then reperfusion is usually seen as T-wave inversion. Now, it'll be the opposite for posterior infarction by my mirror test. Instead of, I said there's ST segment depression and the T wave, the inverted T wave is deeper, you're going to see an upright T wave that gets taller with posterior reperfusion changes. So those are reperfusion changes. The history, this is the key point, can give you a key clue to whether or not there's been reperfusion. And the point that many people don't realize is, sure, PCI on cardiac catheterization can reperfuse, thrombolytics can reperfuse, but you can often see this spontaneously before the patient gets to the hospital. I had terrible chest pain for three hours, it's gone. Spontaneous reperfusion. Your body heals itself in a sense, and can open up. Maybe it's still an 80% lesion, and it still may cause some future problems, but it's open and there's perfusion, and your chest pain may decrease or even go away, and the ST segments go down. That is data that's often lost, because people don't correlate each and every ECG to the history at the time that you're looking at it. So when I talk about dynamic changes, okay, the patient had severe chest pain at home, but it was gone by the time EMS arrived. So the ECG was nonspecific, non-diagnostic, nonspecific ST segment flattening. By the time the first ECG is done, the paramedics get there, and then you do another one that's in the hospital, and the chest pain, it's coming back a little bit. You look, and the ECG might not be that dramatic until you compare it to the ECG that showed flat ST segments that are now starting to rise at the same time that the patient is starting to get new chest pain. This is dynamic. You don't have to stop for go. You don't have to get your ponin values, basically. You don't have to repeat cardiograms. 
if it's a posterior infarction, you don't have to get posterior leads, you need to reperfuse that patient. Why? Well, what's spontaneously occluded might just as easily spontaneously reocclude. And sometimes what you have in the history and serial ECGs can tell you this is sometimes you got a culprit vessel that occluded, it opened a little, it reoccluded again, chest pain came back a little bit, ST segments started to go up, no, they went away now, came back and forth and back and forth, sometimes multiple times until finally the body adjusts at its final equilibrium, which if it happens to be with total coronary occlusion, you're in trouble. So that's why even when the patient says, hey, I feel better, I'm in the emergency room, you tell me my cardiogram now looks normal, I'm going home. How often have you seen that scenario? And that's a patient who needs to go to the cath lab. Sometimes, often, in my experience, from following all these cases, both on Dr. Smith's ECG blog and the internet with cases I've seen, is those patients are not treated, okay? They're called a non-STEMI. Maybe you missed the ST elevation in the first place. So those are patients that need to be reperfused to prevent spontaneous reocclusion. I'm down to my last little point, just about done with covering this topic. The last point that I would bring up is not learning from our cases. And we all know this from whatever you're training. If you're a paramedic, nurse, clinician, cardiologist, emergency physician, you got to get follow-up. Now, I understand, and this happens on the internet all the time, with paramedics, they don't see the patient again. But if it's possible to get follow-up next time you go to that hospital, ask the clinicians, see if you're able to get from the chart, get follow-up. This is how I learned. So this is the first point that uh, Anthony had asked me, how did I get to be so good? Well, I followed everything up. In the days when digoxin was used, I would follow up serum dig levels to what the ECG looked at. I would follow up serum potassium levels as the patient was treated and the hypo or hyperkalemia was corrected, what happened to the ECG? As the arrhythmia was treated, what happened to what I thought was occult retrograde P waves on the electrocardiogram? This is how we learn. Now, sometimes I learn from mistakes. Hopefully, I didn't make too many mistakes that cost were too costly, but you got to learn from what we're doing. That's the reality. After the fact, after the case, go back and look at things. And this is particularly true with ECG interpretation. I'll give the example of a patient I'll never forget with uh, lung cancer. This was an outpatient, unfortunate case. And basically, you know, the patient ended up having this severe lung cancer. And I had done a chest X-ray. It was, uh, I think, a year or something ago. And I went back and I looked at the X-ray after I found out he had this terrible spread of his lung cancer. And I felt at least a little bit better that his lung cancer was not obvious to me or to other providers a year ago. But, but knowing that this is the area that he subsequently developed this huge cancer, I say, yes, there is something there. 
And you can do the same thing with an electrocardiogram. So I think learning from our cases, painful as it may be, that's how we get better. That was amazing. <clears throat> and thank you so much. There's so many key points and main points that you've highlighted. And we've highlighted really key aspects of 12-lead interpretation. We talked about acute myocardial ischemia and really focused on acute coronary occlusion. We conveyed the concept of occlusion myocardial infarction, or OMI, emphasizing appreciation of how the STEMI paradigm can miss at least 30% of acute coronary occlusions, then could be picked up using this OMI, OMI paradigm. Furthermore, we cited ECG findings, and Dr. Grauer took us through a number of them. How do you recognize hyperacute T waves? Look back, make sure to look at that in relation to the QRS complex. Look for the mirror image ST T wave changes that can be seen as reciprocal changes, as he mentioned, posterior MI and watching out for those. Optimizing use of serial ECGs, making sure how to correlate not only the ECG and when it was taken as a baseline, but those correlated symptoms at the time. Dr. Grauer, there was so much that you talked about us here, and I'm really enjoying this. And we've gone through two episodes. Hopefully those will go back and listen to the previous one where we talked about common errors. We're so grateful for your ongoing support, your countless contributions to the field, and so much that you continue to do for us learners. We hope you'll join us again. Thank you so much, Anthony. It'd be my pleasure to join you again. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast at cveducation.mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME Podcast on your favorite platform and tune in to explore today's most pressing electrocardiography topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic Podcast.